This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Oh, my darling, not three times on the ceiling if you want me. We love using musical interludes in this program, but if we're going to start out the show with a piece from Tony Orlando and Don, you know we have to have something special in mind. And we don't know whether this song inspired some of those brainy people working in tech, but we do know that these geniuses have some bright ideas in store for us uh, as regards the so-called smart speaker. To quote from the Science and Technology section of The Economist, May 11th issue, we have the following. Smart speakers like Amazon Echo, Google Home, and Apple HomePod are spreading rapidly. It is now common to hear people asking such assistants to provide weather forecasts or traffic updates or to play audiobooks or music from streaming services. But because a smart speaker can only act on what it hears, it has little understanding of objects and people in its vicinity or what those people might be up to. To which I would add, thank God. But notes the article, having such awareness might improve its performance and might also let users communicate with these digital servants by deed as well as word. The article describes some people at Carnegie Mellon University out in Pittsburgh deciding to enhance these smart speakers by using vision as well as hearing. The chosen tool is LIDAR, or is it LIDAR? I'm not sure. I guess it's LIDAR, a system that works like radar by bouncing a beam of electromagnetic waves off its surroundings and measuring how quickly those waves return. That information run through appropriate software builds up an image of what the beam is pointing at. If, as many radars do, a LIDAR then revolves, it can sweep the beam around to create a 360-degree picture of its surroundings. Sounds pretty scary to us. But there's more. Apparently, a Swan Solutions of Texas sells Knockeye, an accelerometer which can be fixed to a surface to detect the vibrations made by someone knocking on that surface. Different devices, lamps or a television, say, as well as a smart speaker, can then be activated by anyone making the appropriate prearranged number of knocks. Someone knocking at the door, somebody ringing the bell. Someone's knocking at the door, somebody's ringing the bell. Do me a favor, open the door and let him in. Wow, two bad pieces of music associated with one item. We've got to do something about that. Well, okay, here's a way to do it. We did not mention on last week's program the obituary for Doris Day, an American legend. The obituaries note that her on-screen presence was so wholesome that it became a joke. I'm so old, I knew Doris Day before she was a virgin, went the well-worn quip variously attributed to either Oscar Levant or, or Groucho Marx. But between World War II and Vietnam, the blue-eyed, buttery blonde actress and singer was America's undisputed sweetheart. 
with theater owners giving Day the number one spot four times in their annual poll of box office draws in the early 1960s. Day typically played the role of a spunky professional woman who fends off the advances of a callow playboy and invariably tames him. She first arrived on the scene as a singer in 1945. Her million-selling Sentimental Journey became the anthem of returning World War II servicemen and led to a contract at Warner Brothers. I always liked that song. Mr. Merlin, can you indulge me? Gonna take a sentimental journey Gonna set my heart at ease Gonna make a sentimental journey To renew old memories That's Ringo Starr's version. You couldn't find Doris Day's? Since we have stumbled into Ringo and the Beatles, let, let's see if we can improve the general quality of the sound clips here. It feels so right now, You know, when lists are compiled of great Beatles songs, I think that uh, Hold Me Tight, along with uh, Hey Bulldog, probably never make the list, but, you know, they ought to. What a couple of great tunes. In fact, when we used to have Will Durst on this program on a regular basis, we used that as his sort of theme song. Hey Bulldog, I mean. Anyway, back to Doris Day. It turns out when her third husband, producer Martin Melcher, died in 1968, she learned he had lost $20 million of her earnings through bad business investments and left her $500,000 in debt. Despite hitting the idea of doing TV, she managed to recoup some of her losses by starring in The Doris Day Show, which ran for six seasons. The name Terry Melcher surfaced in the news back in 1969 in the wake of the murders that took place in Hollywood by the Manson family. That night where five died in the Hollywood Hills, uh, they were at Terry Melcher's house. He wasn't there. According to our Hollywood correspondent, Dr. Don Rose, Doris Day somehow got wind of the fact that uh, Charles Manson had been by the place or gotten near the place. And I forget the exact details of the story, but supposedly she felt so... Unnerved by Manson, she told Terry Melcher to move out of that house. And, well, good thing he did. Speaking of the late Sharon Tate, I don't know whether to be horrified or intrigued by the fact that Quentin Tarantino is going to have a a new movie out now that uh, weaves her into the plot uh, about Hollywood in that exact era. It's going to have an all-star cast. Leo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, Al Pacino. It has all the earmarks of being another Pulp Fiction Perhaps, but um, just have to follow that story as it evolves. Anyway, the Doris Day story has a reasonably happy ending. She did uh, retire, uh, fairly comfortable, I believe, down in the Carmel area, and uh, lived out her life pleasantly. The obituaries note that as the years went by, she increasingly shied away from the spotlight, devoting most of her time to animal rights causes. She's quoted as saying, I've never met an animal I didn't like, adding, I can't say the same thing about people. Speaking of animals and people and obituaries, and how's that for a segue, we should also note the passing of 
Jim Fowler. Jim Fowler is a name who needs no introduction to anyone who used to watch The Tonight Show. He made over 100 appearances, usually bringing along some strange animal. And you certainly know who Jim Fowler is if you were old enough to have watched Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. A somewhat cheesy but always entertaining program that used to air on Sunday afternoons a long time ago on commercial television. I didn't realize it, but I guess the show debuted in 1963 and clocked up to 30 million viewers a week. The obituaries mentioned that Jim Fowler got knocked unconscious by the chimpanzee that used to appear on the show, Mr. Moak. As I recall, Mr. Moak was a rather juvenile chimpanzee, but uh, as reported on this program some years back, it turns out that chimps are way, way stronger than humans. So evidently, even the six-foot-six Jim Fowler was no match for an adolescent chimpanzee. During one episode, Fowler had his entire arm swallowed, but then spat out by a 22-foot anaconda. He made a name for himself back in the 1950s uh, down in the Amazon, studying the harpy eagle, one of the world's largest raptors. He came back to America with three of the birds, one of which joined him for an episode of the Today Show. That appearance impressed Marlon Perkins, who was at the time developing um, the Wild Kingdom. Perkins hired Fowler as his sidekick, and on the first episode, Fowler flew a harpy eagle in Chicago's Lincoln Park. At one point, the massive bird dove at a woman walking her poodle. Fowler pulled the line tight just in time. Had that eagle grabbed the woman or the dog, he said, my career would have been over before it started. Yeah, but it'd still be getting a million hits a year on YouTube. And we get a lot of uh, letters to this program asking us why it is we don't do more stories on art. Actually, I'm lying. No one has ever written us requesting more stories on art. But the truth be told, it wouldn't kill us to do more of them. And what do you know? I've got the perfect story in my left hand. The article I have from the LA Times notes that a few years ago, the joke going around was that a cocaine habit was God's way of saying you have too much money. Well, cocaine is out of favor today, but for the 0.01% of the population, high-priced art has taken its place. Witness the latest moment of excesses in the art market, the $91 million sale at Christie's of a stainless steel sculpture of a rabbit by Jeff Koons. What strikes me about this art is the uncanny resemblance it bears to the Energizer Bunny. So who would have thought it? Take the Energizer Bunny, redo it in stainless steel, sell it for $91 million. If you just find the right buyer. Oh, the buyer in this case was Robert E. Mnuchin, who is described as a former executive at Goldman Sachs. He currently applies his trade as an art dealer. And, and by God, he is the father of Treasury Secretary Stephen T. Mnuchin, which the LA Times notes must stand out as some sort of commentary on 21st century robber barons and their relationships with the plutocrat-loving administration currently in Washington. This, this bit of uh, art world excess has uh, drawn the attention of a few people. And there has been a surge in auctions of high-priced artworks lately, and it's uh, bringing home to some, well, at least in the case of Elizabeth Warren, candidate for president, the weaknesses of the argument against a higher marginal income tax rate for the 
wealthy. This does bring home the fact that uh, statistics seem to show that the top 0.1% in America today control almost as much wealth as the bottom 90%. The piece notes that the mantras one hears from the water carriers for the wealthy is that they're the job creators, the engines of economic growth, and it's folly to discourage them from working by imposing a stiff tax on their last dollars of earnings and wealth, which brings the LA Times to the question of what's produced by the auction sale of a piece of modern art. They note that Jeff Koons is not unanimously respected by art critics, to put it mildly, even by those who favor Dada and avant-gardism, the general categories that encompass his work. Art critic Jed Pearl referred to a 2014 Koons retrospective at New York's Whitney Museum of American Art as a multi-million dollar mausoleum in which everything that was ever lively and challenging about avant-gardism and Dada and Duchamp has gone to die. Anyway, the word is that the best performing art market in the world in recent years is the USA, possibly because its 0.01% have been able to retain their wealth better than those in other countries despite the recession. And we'll see if we can't close the discussion without once even mentioning the large rabbit piece of art out at the Sacramento International Airport, which some people I know like. But of course, as we pointed out in this program before, and we'll point out again, de gustibus non est disputandum. How much you like something isn't really a matter of dispute, but of course, isn't it what we love to fight over? At this point, I think we should jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for autocrats with a remarkable eight-goal performance by Russian President Vladimir Putin in an exhibition hockey game with both officials and real professional players. Noted The Week, the nimble 66-year-old Putin had defenders and goalies so wrong-footed that in slow-motion replays, they almost appeared to be letting him score. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for Donald, the once popular boy's name, which has dropped 39 places in popularity between 2017 and 2018. The name's current ranking of number 526 is its lowest since Social Security Administration records began in the 1880s. My question is, why do you suppose that is? And it was an ugly week last week for conquistadors. New archaeological research suggesting that many of the Spanish invaders who were captured by the Aztecs got fattened up for six months, then ritually slaughtered one by one and eaten. Which definitely has me, at any rate, thinking that yo no quiero Taco Bell. And from the week's Only in America file, we, we have this. A San Francisco primary school teacher on sick leave with breast cancer has been forced to pay the wages of her substitute. A 1976 rule requires teachers to pay for their own substitutes after 10 days sick leave. Reportedly, a public outcry may spur action by lawmakers. And speaking of San Francisco and great injustices, 
Earlier this week, comedians Dave Chappelle and W. Kamal Bell joined politicians in the steps of San Francisco's City Hall in a rally to help save the Punchline Comedy Club. Chappelle was in town to play the club and called it an American phenomenon. The club was reportedly unable to renew its lease earlier this year, and the property's evidently being covetously eyed by the good folks over at Google. San Francisco Supervisor Aaron Peskin closed the rally by revealing a three-pronged plan to save the club. He got one of the rally's biggest laughs with a slip of the tongue as he introduced the interim zoning moratorium that he and other supervisors will introduce next month. It will pervert, prevent, or possibly pervert the conversion of the venue from an entertainment use to any other use as a matter of law. Peskin said that the city will hold a reasonable conversation, in quotes, with Morgan Stanley, the owner of the building, and its likely lessee, which Peskin revealed to be Google. He said, I want to say to Google, really, really do no evil. We'd like to do this with honey and not with vinegar. We're hoping those talks will be fruitful. The city has also nominated the punchline as a legacy business, which comes with financial benefits, according to Peskin. You know, we need to put in a call to our old pal Will Durst to see where he, where he stands on this issue. As a San Francisco transplant and lover of the city where we're, and professional comedian of the highest order, I, I'll wager he's got a thought or two on the matter. And also, speaking of San Francisco, it turns out that the former mayor of San Francisco, Gavin Newsom, is now California's governor. It's probably not fair to blame Governor Newsom for the fact that San Francisco is now one of the world's greatest encampments of homeless people. But we would note that he's put together a housing task force to address housing issues, and he throws homeless into the mix. As if the problem with the homeless was that they didn't have a roof over their heads. Anyway, we hope he can do some good with this, uh, this task force he's putting together. But it does remind me of that quote from Fred Allen. He was describing a conference saying that a conference is composed of individuals who singly can do nothing, but together can decide that nothing can be done. We just hope here at Radio Parallax that with Gavin sitting in the governor's chair, that our state capitol will not see an upswing in the number of fecal soilings on the city streets. We can't resist mentioning that when the boy governor took over in January and... Uh, outline his vision for the future of California, which did not include high-speed rail. This resulted in the Trump administration pulling the rug out from federal funding. Signing off on this issue is Dan Walters, who notes that at last count, California's Democratic political leadership has filed four dozen lawsuits against President Donald Trump's administration, reflecting differences on policies large and small. Said Walters, for the most part, California's legal allegations have been on target. However, Trump is on solid legal and logical ground in the latest conflict over the state's disastrous foray into high-speed rail transportation. According to Dan, nine years ago, the Obama administration gave the state a $3.5 billion grant to finance a big share of the initial bullet train segment, more than 100 miles of track from a point north of Fresno to the outskirts of Bakersfield. And, you know, if you think about it, if there is any area in California crying out for high-speed rail... It would be that gap on Highway 99 between Bakersfield and Fresno. Walters notes the federal money was to be matched by state funds from a $9.95 billion bond issue passed by California voters in 2008. 
The San Joaquin Valley stretch was to be completed by 2017. Later, before Trump became president, the feds gave California an extension to 2022, but only tiny portions have been built. Last year, the state's auditor Elaine Howe told the legislature that meeting the 2022 deadline would be nearly impossible, citing the high-speed rail authority's flawed decision-making regarding the start of high-speed rail system construction and its ongoing poor contract management for a wide range of high-value contracts. So when Gavin Newsom, when his State of the State address said, let's be real, the project is currently planned would cost too much and take too long and there's been too little oversight, not enough transparency... Right now, there simply isn't a path to get from Sacramento to San Diego, let alone from San Francisco to L.A. He said he would concentrate on finishing the San Joaquin Valley segment, extending it on both ends to piece together a three-system pathway for traveling between San Francisco and Bakersfield. Regarding Gavin Newsom's claim that the Trump administration is trying to extract political retribution... Walter said, that's not really true. The money was part of an overall appropriation by Congress for rail projects, and California was given a piece of it by the Obama administration under a contract. It has not met its contractual obligations and cannot, as House said late last year, meet the 2022 deadline due to poor management during Brown's administration. He concludes by saying the bullet train utterly lacks a rational purpose, has been ill-managed from the onset, and is a financial black hole. If the Trumpies strangle it, they'd be doing California a big favor. And another topic we, we love to, uh, to bag on on this program, California's uh, ill-advised twin tunnels program, advanced under Jerry Brown, or Jerry Brown attempted to advance it more properly. The project has been left in a state of very muddy water, given that Gavin Newsom has <laughs> said that he does not favor the twin tunnel proposal. He favors a single tunnel. I guess that'd be kind of like, you know, I resent the fact that you're pointing that double-barreled shotgun at me. I would feel much better if you only had a single barrel. We need to bring Dan Bacher back on this program. He had a piece in the Sacramento News and Review a few weeks back. A disturbing piece titled On Extinction's Edge, subtitled Zero Delta Smelt Found in State's Annual Fall Survey. Noted Dan Bacher, once the most abundant fish in the entire Delta estuary, the smelt population has collapsed to a point where not one fish was found in the California Department of Fish and Wildlife's 2018 fall midwater trawl, the lowest in history. Bucker quotes Bill Jennings, executive director of the California Sport Fishing Protective Alliance, is saying Governor Brown's legacy is likely to be several extinctions of fish that flourished in this estuary for millennia. The Delta smelt isn't the only fish missing from the fall 2018 survey. It also didn't find any Sacramento split tail, a native minnow species that was formerly listed under the Endangered Species Act until the Bush administration delisted it. Yes. The Bush administration decided that it shouldn't be called an endangered species, and now they can't find any. The article notes that found only in the Sacramento-San Joaquin River Delta, the 2-3 to inch smelt mainly inhabits the freshwater-saltwater mixing zone of the estuary, except during its spawning season. That's when it migrates upstream to freshwater following winter first flush flow events around March to May. 
The smelt is very susceptible to changes in its environmental conditions due to its one-year life cycle and relatively low fecundity. Scientists don't have an easy answer for the Delta smelt's precipitous decline, particularly in 2017, a record water year when biologists would have expected a rebound. Ouch. Now, I'm no fisheries expert, but I know that when they tried to market this twin tunnel proposal of sticking a giant straw up higher upstream in the Sacramento River as part of a comprehensive plan to improve the ecology of the Delta, I'm pretty sure of this. You cannot improve the habitat of fish by taking away their water. I think you can take that one to the bank. And California isn't the only place that's uh, tried to make the desert bloom using water. Apparently, they're doing so over in Afghanistan. Here's the curious part. Apparently, the Afghans have hooked up solar panels to drive pumps that pull up groundwater for use in their irrigation canals. And it's worthy of note that the main thing they're growing right now is opium. According to the United Nations, poppy cultivation in Afghanistan is close to its highest level since monitoring began in 1994. Article in The Economist notes that a lot of poppy farmers cannot afford to grow anything else. Grows well out in the desert. And apparently entirely new communities have grown up to do just that. And apparently the jury is still out on the Chinese effort to reclaim their uh, arid areas near the Gobi Desert. There's been a gigantic move afoot in the country to plant trees and to supposedly reverse the desertification of the region. But The Economist notes that there's little evidence that the Green Wall is working as well as the government claims, and some scientists believe it may be making the problem worse. We should note that the Chinese have been at this since they took over the country back in 1949. Current estimates are that only about 15% of the trees planted since that time have survived. And at least in some instances, once they've used up the remaining water where they're planted, they then have died, leaving the land even more barren than before. Speaking of solar panels, have you ever wondered how much uh, you would need of various energy-generating means to power up your house? Well, some folks have done the math on this, and it turns out that one 300-watt, 18-square-foot solar panel can transform an average day of California sunshine into 1.2 kilowatt hours. So you need about 25 of them on your roof to cover one spin of the globe. I'm a little bit shocked by this figure of 30 kilowatt hours of electricity uh, per day, per house, but I guess that's what we use. If you switch to coal... God forbid, you're going to need to burn 33 pounds of it to power up your house. Natural gas is uh, cleaner burning, but you're going to still need 234 cubic feet of it. We all like to think of hydroelectric power as pretty green. You're going to need to pour 640 square feet of swimming pool water through Hoover Dam's turbines to produce your daily electrical consumption. That can be done in less than a second. Oh, and that's... 24,000 gallons if you're keeping score. You can use wind to power your house. You're going to need uh, 54 seconds on a typical wind turbine, which seems surprisingly good. Back east, they rely on heating oil to heat their houses. If you wanted to power up your entire house with heating oil, you'd need three full gallons of it. And finally, there's nuclear energy. Enriched uranium in a nuclear reactor will need to be burned up to the tune of 0.02 ounces, less than the weight of a paperclip. Anyway, 
we agree we need more renewables we need more solar panels we need more wind we probably can use more water we've already have dammed up the stream but hey we got to give nuclear power another look in the two minutes we have left in this segment we want to note that uh, while we don't compliment donald trump very often on this program we obtain some degree of relief by knowing noting that he does joke that john bolton's going to get him into a war which he is inclined to not want to do so let's give credit where credit's due on that one but one thing i did not know was that apparently trump is fuming at john bolton for pushing him into supporting venezuelan opposition leader juan guaido trump hates backing a loser and president nicolas maduro remains firmly in power and for that he's evidently blaming bolton because frankly well he is the blamer if george w bush was the decider by his own description well we'd have to label trump the blamer which i suppose is a nicer label than the 1.2 billion dollars a decade loser all right let's take a short break you're listening to radio parallax (laughs) 